Today at Reader's Corner, Jack Devine, author of Spymaster's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Our guest today is retired CIA and legendary spymaster Jack Devine. In his latest book, Spymaster's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression, Jack Devine details the unending struggle with Russia and its intelligence agencies as it works against our national security. He tells this story through the unique perspective of a seasoned CIA professional who served for more than three decades, some at the highest levels of the agency. Walking us through the fascinating spy cases and covert actions of Russia, Jack Devine covers not only the Cold War, but also Russia's interference in the Trump era and predictions for the future. Jack Devine is a 32-year veteran of the CIA, serving at the pinnacle of his career as the CIA's top spymaster, acting deputy director of the CIA's operations outside the United States. An expert on intelligence matters, Devine's writing frequently appears in the Washington Post, the Financial Times, and elsewhere. Jack Devine, welcome to Reader's Corner. Pleasure to be with you, Bob. Well, Jack, as I was uh, explaining to you before we went on to the air, this is interesting because this is not like our first rodeo when it comes to Russia or Putin. We, uh, we've, we've interviewed Angela Stent for Putin's World. We've interviewed Seth Jones for a covert action. We've interviewed uh, Michael McFall for From Cold War to Hot Peace, Putin's People by Catherine Belton. But this is clearly the first time we've had the opportunity to talk to somebody who has had his hands on the wheel, so to speak, uh, who comes from from such a high post within the CIA. And I wonder if we could just start off by having you share with our listeners just what director of CIA operations means. What kind of a job is that? And I use the word spy master. Truth of the matter is, and this is a secret that I'm sharing with you, (laughs) agency people, CIA CIA people never refer to anybody as a spy. They're always (laughs) agents. That's the foreigner out there. You're a case officer. You're an operations officer. When I first joined, I was in the directorate of plans. It had nothing to do with plans, right? It was all about espionage and operations. So just a quick tidbit on history. You know, when the agency was founded, and Americans come slowly to intelligence as an organized system. You know, we've had it throughout our history, but then we disbanded. And that was true after World War II. We disbanded it. So when they created CIA in 1947, they gave it different mandates, and they set it up in a pretty simple way, which I would recommend we go back to it. They had one for administration, you know, taking care of the health benefits and uh, your transportation travel. And then you had the science and technology, satellites, how you make bugs and all this thing. And then you have analysts, and, you know, you can find those in uh, analysts, many walks of life. And then you have operators, and this is where there's a uniqueness, and that's the Spy masters, people that run spies, even though inside they don't talk that way. The rest of the world, that's how they view it. So in that directorate, operations, plans, clandestine service, it's called now the National Clandestine Service. It's all about running agents, spies around the world. And that's 50% of the job. The other 50% is action. So you've read a lot of things, but in the novel world, you have James Bond, Ian Fleming, right? Boom and bang hopping around the world. That's your covert action side. And then the espionage side is La Carre's, George Smiley, plotting spies, 
counter spies, moles. So they're the two principal disciplines. So as the director of operations, uh, the deputy director for operations, you're responsible for all of that activity, the combination of James Bond and George Smiley's world, to put it in the vernacular. Well, I don't think there's anyone listening that hasn't heard of the KGB. That goes back many years to the old Cold War. And I'm sure during your early years in the CIA, you uh, knew quite a bit about the KGB and still do. But today it's the SBR and the GRU. I wonder if you could share with us What's the difference? What's what's happened when it comes to this transition from the old KGB to the new SBR and GRU? Well, first of all, Bob, I would say there hasn't been much of it. You know, you can change your name, but, you know, you can call a leopard an elephant, but, you know, it's still a leopard, right? So the KGB, there was a couple of differences with Americans, right? And CIA, we were responsible for operations only outside the United States, Inside the United States, it's the FBI. In the Russian system, in the old days, in the Cold War, the KGB did inside the country and outside, right? But in their new formation, you have a group called the FSB, which is like the FBI, and the KGB is the SVR. They always also had the military group called GRU, Border Protection Military Intelligence, But what is very interesting to me is that the KGB is very similar. I mean, the SBR is very similar to the KGB. What is really different, and you'll notice that many of these cyber operations are run by the GRU. There is the GRU maybe because of the big data and the the complexity of cyber, um, cyber espionage that they become more involved. In the old days, they were the smaller partner. So today... KGB is as aggressive as ever, running operations in the United States, including cyber. But the GRU is a big player as well. And that's, that's, that's different. And it's focused beyond military things. Putin, Putin was both. At one point, as a young man, he was a KGB officer. Right. Later on, he became uh, the head of the FSB, the FBI. So he has deep intelligence roots and, and maybe like having served early in your career in CIA and then later became the director of the FBI. So he has some pretty unique credentials for a president. You say at the outset of your book that the Russian hacking of our 2016 elections should be a wake-up call to the reality of, of Russian spying today. And I think not long after that, you comment that, uh, hey, that may mean that there's some Russian high-level spies in our government today. Uh, could you comment on that? Bob, there's two really good points in your question uh, that I am really glad you asked. One is the wake-up call part. And, uh, and again, when we were in the Cold War, we had sort of an understanding with the KGB. It's called the Moscow Rules. There's other versions of the Moscow Rules, but the fundamental one was there were certain things we were going to do and not going to do. And we didn't counterfeit each other's currency. You're not going to find it in writing, but we understand it. Uh, there was no beating up of the KGB or the CIA, although there were a few <laughs> exceptions around the edges. But by and large, there were ground rules. But the biggest one was that we were not going to meddle in each other's country. Even though you, all the movies, the books, had the CIA running around, running covert action operations in Russia and vice versa. That is really not true. The battle was outside of both countries. 
So the 2016 election is a wake-up call in the sense that, unfortunately, we got wrapped in around the political side of it, collusion and this and the other. But when you look at the Mueller report, what you really see is that they're meddling inside our country in a way that's unprecedented. And that is not only do they collect intelligence, they were using it in political action. And that is new. And I think we're missing the, the boat on what that's all about and why that has as the, the part in the election certainly has uh, importance in the political uh, discussion of 2016 election. But in terms of intelligence service to intelligence service and its long-term goals, I think we haven't put enough attention on it. But the other aspect is, do we have spies inside of our government? You know, I knew Rick Ames, and then we read the book. So I knew Rick Ames not just as some guy walking down the hall, but I, I worked 10 feet from him. I went to his wedding. He worked for me once, right? And he was a Russian agent. In other words, he was a spy, a CIA guy working for the Russians. And one of the seniors in the CIA had the administrative people print out buttons never again and everybody's walking around the building after the Ames expose and he was arrested and I refused to wear one because I knew because it was very senior that we, we were looking for another mole we knew he existed inside the CIA and my point is never again there are always spies inside of each country service if you look at Ames he was their spy in our system and what he gave up is the name of 11 spies we had in their system all of our Folks were killed as a result of that. So today, I don't believe the Russians have lost a step in this. And I hope we haven't lost a step and that we both have a fair stable of assets, agents, spies that work for us. And I think it's a peacekeeping measure, by the way, I would add that that's a bigger discussion. But let me just leave it at that. They're always a spy. I'm Bob Custer here at Reader's Corner. You're listening to Jack Devine. He's the author of Spy Master's Prism. The fight against Russian aggression. Well, I, I have to ask you about one other spy uh, because I found it so interesting that uh, you found yourself at a dinner sitting next to a guy by the name of Nicholson. And uh, you use this as an example of the unrelenting nature of Russian efforts to recruit Americans to spy for them. But this was a particularly dastardly case because this was like a family affair. Right. Well, and so was the very famous Walker uh, spy case, which was one of the most damaging in the Navy. We gave up our spies. But Nicholson, yeah, he had his son involved, you know, and uh, you have to ask what kind of mindset gets his son involved. And there were small amounts of money involved, as you recall in the book. You know, I think it was 30000 or something. But you know, you're in prison and you get your son involved. I mean, unless you really don't like your son, maybe that's maybe there's some reverse Oedipus complex here or something. But there were a couple of things about Nicholson. Uh, one, I had a deputy who actually went through the training facility when he was there at the same time. And uh, Nicholson said to him, you know, you're going to go out to be chief of station. Don't work too hard. Get all the benefits, right? Now, that's a mindset. Now, what is that mindset? That's a lazy mindset, right? That's a person that doesn't have the ambition. If you were to ask Ames the same thing, he would tell you, oh, don't work too hard. I mean, you know, there's this gap between having a big ego and not working hard. And in there, if you're looking for spies, if you see that super ego and low performance on both sides, in the Russian system and our system, that's when you want to start targeting for recruitment. And Nicholson had that. So you've already addressed or commented on this issue of what more we have to do and, and why we have to be even more alert now than we've ever been before. 
especially when it comes to the cyber warfare. You make the claim in your book that the cyber attacks on our 2016 election could be seen as the inevitable result of our wrong-sided policies toward Russia. And also, throughout your book, you you point out the fact that 9-11 may have had something to do with this, uh, distracting the United States in many ways from what was eventually to show up at our shores in the 2016 election. Uh, I assume you were referring to Iraq and Afghanistan, but I'll let you comment on that. Yeah, I... You know, one of the things that happened, I happened to be uh, in Rome. I was the chief of station in Rome at a point in time. Oh, I'll tell you exactly was when when uh, the Soviet Union fell apart. And the head of the Italian service came to me and he said, Jack, Pax Americana. That means America is going to rule the world, right? You can say, well, Pax Romana didn't last either, so don't get so cocky. But... The point was, where were our adversaries? And there was a movement in both the Republican Democratic Party and Congress and government people, by and large. It wasn't anyone picking on it. It said, well, the Cold War is over. Democracy prevails. Lighten up. And CIA had morale issues. It was trying to find its mission. And there was terrorism and counter-narcotics. But there was that core mission, and the budgets were cut. When 9-11 came... Everybody then recognized you need the CIA and you need the FBI and, and robust form as well because you have a terrorism. So what happened? All the money and resources went to the terrorism. And 9-11, when 9-11 happened, we ended up in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I have a big problem with why we went into Iraq, and that's a long discussion. We want to go into it. Afghanistan, you know, I ran the program to get the Russians out in the late 80s. and was there when the Stinger missile went in. And to me, that was the right thing to do. You go in, and if people want to fight and they're fighting against the Russian or trying to protect their homeland, we support them. You can't force feed it. So when 9-11 came, we went in again, not with some new tribal leaders, the same guys. The CIA special forces basically brought down the Taliban. Then we decided to put an army in there, and that was where the mistake was made. People just didn't read history. The Russians did it, but not only before the Russians, the Brits did it. If you put an occupying army, as Colin Powell once said, you own it. So what happened then is all the resources, when you do war fighting, it just sucks up resources. So the CIA's budget, the, the intelligence buzzing, dropped from 70% on Russia down to 10%. Now it's working its way back because Russia's been more menacing in the last few years. So it, I'm not... I'm not critiquing, uh, you know, whole groups of people. I'm just saying that the course of history, that's the result of what, what happened. And we have to look at that. And we now need to make, make those adjustments. So just to, to clarify, what percentage of our intelligence resources now, today, do we devote to Russia? Yeah, they won't. I mean, it's not generally public, but it was a 10%. I'll give you Jack Devine's rough <laughs> Rough estimates probably closer to 22.6%. But, you know, it, it's gone up. It's gone up by some factor, but it's still not, you know, what you now have is a new issue, or new in the last, you know, 25 years, and that's China, right? So I'm, I suspect that there's a big chunk of money rightfully going to China, and the terrorism budget is shrinking and has been shrinking steadily as we have gotten that under control. That doesn't mean there isn't going to be a terrorist event and a shocking one, but the need to have your entire budget, your entire military and everything focused on it, I think everyone recognizes bigger 
issues today. Yeah. My next question was going to be, well, tell us about uh, what percentage of intelligent resources go to China. And um, I think that does get us to the, to the question that you've just raised. And please take over from there. So, you know, people say, why, Jack, why are you writing a book on Russia? You know, and why do you see it so big? And it's the point that I made earlier, Bob. The Chinese really are not messing around inside our political process. They're not in the espionage. They're collecting intelligence. Let me correct myself. They're collecting intelligence, but they're not using it politically. The Russians are. They did it in the 16 election, 2022. They're going to do it. Uh, It's part of their overall strategy to keep us. It's part of their pronounced strategy. The Chinese is a a lot more tricky because we have a big uh, interaction in the economic arena. So wound together, the, the political risk of doing it are much greater. So when I'm talking about the gravity of threat, I would say the gravity of internal United States, who's working against it, the Russian. If you're looking at it geopolitically, and where's, where are we going to meet a competitor that has the Navy, the Army, the military capability, the economic base? It's China. They are a very serious competitor. Russia has a GDP of Spain or Italy. In other words, it's not a competitor. It has nuclear weapons, so you have to treat them with all due deference. But in the intelligence business, they're the greater threat. But as a geopolitical threat, it's China. So that's that's where we're. And I would think the budget would reflect that. You know, I would like to see thirty three point three percent on on uh, on Russia and uh, fifty two point four, you know, whatever on China, and then we have a whole other set of targets. And one of the big battlefields, I'm sure we're going to talk about that, is the cyber war. And how's that going to be conducted in terms of our national policy? We're back in fighting nation states. And I wrote that in my first book, Good Hunting. Terrorism is going to shrink. And now we're going to be dealing with large nation state issues. China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. That's more reminiscent of the past than the future. Cyber, the way it's handled, is the future. Jack, I think you said something uh, in your book about uh, the need for a subterranean agreement when it comes to what's going on today with this uh, cyber warfare. This, of course, gets us back to the Moscow rules and the the so-called rules of engagement. Uh, Putin here is obviously the key. Uh, And I guess the question I have for you is whether or not you see Putin just storming forward. I mean, last December, uh, he stormed forward with another cyber attack on some of our key federal agencies. So I guess I'm answering my own question. It doesn't look like he's like he's willing to, uh, to to let up any. But I wonder if you could comment on this subterranean agreement idea that you have in your book. So uh, there was an, an attack last week against USAID, again, by Russian intelligence, right? I mean, that's a publicly yeah. stated uh, Microsoft attack. Attack against Microsoft, and that's last week. So, solar winds, we we raised hell, but what they just ignored it, right? So, the the problem with cyber, it's very hard to have a discussion about them because you know you can have a treaty and you can talk about missiles and everybody sit around and say I've got a thousand, you have a thousand, but no one can you can't start to discuss it. Yeah, we're all in cyber, we're all digging into each other's intelligence networks, right? It's a very difficult thing to have a treaty about. And that's where I get to Sub Rosa. Uh, Sub Rosa, as opposed to Subterranean, 
Some rosa comes from the monks in the old days. You wanted to speak uh, quietly and secretly, there was a rose you stood under, and so it became some rosa. And in the spy world, it means, you know, secret. So the Moscow rules are those rules that, you know, the two intelligence services sit down, they don't write it up, and they say, look, where are we going here? <laughs> you're attacking our country. You're into our systems. And you're now using it politically. Is this what you want? You want us to do the same? I mean, we have to decide because we're going to have to respond. President Biden said, we'll respond in kind. I mean, we're going to give you sanctions, but we're going to respond in kind. Respond in kind would be doing what what they're doing to us. We would be doing back to them. I haven't seen the ramifications of that yet. But I think this is where there are no rules in the road. This is very dangerous. It's more dangerous than the Cold War in this sense that, we had an under, there were agreements there. We knew what each side had. We could talk about it. There, there best of my under, my recollection and, and understanding today is we don't have rules. No, there's no rules. And I think the government, and this is going to be, you know, the summit issue. One of the things that they're going to have to figure out is we can't go forward this way. I mean, you just can't, as you said, <laughs> Putin just can't push back and ignore us. And we sit there and suck our thumb. I mean, there's some point it has to give. You're listening to Jack Devine here at Reader's Corner. We're talking about his book, Spy Master's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression. You obviously have many friends and associates who are still in government, many of them, I'm sure, in the Biden administration. What's your take on the Biden administration as far as getting this is concerned? By getting this, I mean your major argument here that we've got some work to do on intelligence source funding and even more work to do on the way we handle our approach to cyber warfare with the Russians. What's their thinking here? Are they where they need to be right now? Yeah, I mean, this is tough not to crack. You know, I think in, in the last administration, I, I think Trump spoke more favorably publicly, but acted pretty tough below the surface between uh, military equipment in the Ukraine and, and so forth. Um now we're going to have to see how the Biden administration responds. But I will say on the high side, the optimistic side, is that it has some very experienced people that know Russia. The new director of CIA is, you know, Russian speaker, served there as ambassador, uh, number three guy at state. He, he, knows, the, he knows the issue. And, uh, you know, I read his book and, you know, he understands that this is not someone, who, Putin is not someone who's going to be charmed, and he's seen the, the results. So they, they're well positioned to understand that. The question is will. And uh, I found over the years, the policy works best when it's bipartisan. When the Congress and the Senate can agree on what are the common threats are, then it's easier for the president to make the decision. In other words, when we were talking about cyber, you know, if it's strictly a political partisan thing, it's never going to go off the ground. But if we could agree uh, and have a better understanding here in America among our politicians about we need to do something cyber, and this is the understanding. If they keep doing what they're doing, we're going to respond in kind. And then it's easier for the president and this president or the past president or future presidents to have discussions or his subordinates, the principles of different agencies to negotiate it. So I, I think a charm offensive isn't going to work with Putin. You're spot on, Bob. This, this guy is a tough guy. He understands muscle. And I'm, I'm talking strength. So we have to be in a position of strength to be taken seriously. 
by him. Now, who want to embrace, be seen at the summit as a big guy and an equal or not an equal? He knows that. But for him, one of the deep psychological things is he, he wants Russia to be taken seriously as as, uh, as the United States. So uh, it's too early to, to give grades to the Biden administration. I'm hopeful that they know what needs to be done. There's just too much politics. You know, you're one side or the other about Repub- uh, Republican Democrats, about Russians, when really it's not rocket science to figure out what they're doing to come to consensus. But for political advantage, we've, we've screwed up the atmospheric show. I think it makes it harder for a president, period, to get it done. So there's a lot of work, not only with Russia, but work that needs to be done down in the Senate. You have an appendix at the end of your book that I definitely want to make sure we get uh, we get into this conversation. It includes a lengthy list of, and I'm reading the title, Russia's Known Elicitation Attempts in Trump's Inner Circle. We don't have time to cover all of them, but I wonder if you could at least comment on what may be for you the most egregious. And does this leave any doubt at all uh, that Trump not only knew what Russia was doing, but perhaps complicit as well? <laughs> you throw a time bomb at the very end. Talk about putting you, put you on the spot. Mueller spent millions of dollars getting at that issue, right? But I think the important thing here, when we look at the Mueller report, um, you know, the political collusion part, people are still fighting about. And I, and I submit the political orientation decide where you come out on it. But what I think is indisputable, the report, and I think most people sit down and say, look, they're running around trying to get agents inside, inside the government. The problem is that they didn't have them around the Trump group because no one expected them to win. So they're trying to make up for lost ground. And it's sloppy. It's not up to their usual standards. They're running around. And there were so many efforts, but they never thought they were going to be reviewed in it. In other words, they were taking what they thought was a calculated risk. But when you look at it, you can see them running running around. And that's the point. Espionage uh, didn't die. Now, in terms about complicit, I'll just finish this, this comment. Uh, you wouldn't have to be running around so hard if you had the president. <laughs> if you had the president, you really wouldn't want him saying anything nice. You know, a good case officer would say, listen, you want to be an effective agent? You, you get tough with us. That way everyone will think you're, you're not a spy. All I'm saying is I have a mindset. I look at it from a prism. There is some unusual behavior, but I, I really tie that to the egocentricity of, of people. But the fact that the, the president was complicit in it, uh, I, I'd have to see some. You know what we're going to know? And this is, the, this is a, a good point. In the book, I say it takes a spy to catch a spy. Most times, the way we find a spy is by recruiting someone else that tells about it. Someday, hopefully sooner than later, someone will come out and explain from inside the KGB what their objectives and motives of what they were doing inside our country and why they have stuck to it. But so far, seemingly that, that person doesn't exist. If he did exist, I think the reflections of that would have been made the Mueller report more precise and clearer. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that. And some great spy will, will uh, someday we'll write a book about that, Bob, together. There you go. There you go. When that, when that hits the press. <laughs> right. So what's your take on the stability of Russia today? And perhaps we can approach this from the recent case of Alexei Navalny. Um, Navalny's protests, Putin's dealing with them. Um, where are we on this? I mean, is there any weakness shown in the 
Putin regime that may give us a little more optimism about getting these guys to the table to at least agree on a new set of Moscow rules? Uh, looking at it uh, this point, getting new Moscow rules, they're going to have to deal with him from a position of strength. And uh, right now, I think he sees the old Tip O'Neill expression, all politics are local. So you start with Putin, what makes him strong in Russia? To be a tough guy in the world, it makes him strong. Going into Ukraine makes him stronger. Going into the Crimea makes him stronger. Weaking the neighbors, saddling up the Belarus, if that's the right expression, messing around in Venezuela. There is, there's a lot of good consumption from what the Russian people are looking. They're looking for a strong leader. If you remember how he started, the, the oligarchs and the big, the big boys in the Communist Party thought, well, let's get Putin in. He, he's a pretty good guy, and he'll manage manage things well. We'll manage him. Well, that turned out not to be a success for them. And he's gotten stronger and stronger within the system. He is much stronger than anyone uh, short of Stalin, in my view, um, in, in the sense of having a handle around the system. Having said that, we live in a new world. You don't get 100,000 people out in the middle of the winter in Russia protesting if you don't have some issues, right? So I would say Putin is still has control over the system. He has to be very careful how he handles the dissent because there is dissent. And as the economy continues to be sluggish, the more his political value depreciates. You know, all autocrats have shortened lifespans as political leaders anyway. So I think the Navani was a real challenge and it hasn't gone away. But when we live in the age of cyber, it's so much easier for people to cause trouble and get demonstrations and all that than it was before. No dictator should sleep well at night. And whether it's Xi or Kim Jong-un, you just can't anticipate that massive demonstration that gets unraveled. So I would say he's strong, but if I wake up tomorrow and the country's rocking and rolling, I will not be surprised, but I will pinpoint it to cyber. And so there's, there is instability, but I think he's got the well under control and he's, he's ratcheting down the lobby. I mean, he's putting the government screws to him in a way that old fashioned nailing down your opposition. He can't keep a lid on it forever though. He has issues, but he's not going anywhere soon. Yeah. So you pinned it on, you mentioned cyber again, and uh, I'm going to use our last question for uh, one, one about that. How does the United States government defend itself? Can we contain Russia's intelligence aggressive operations in cyber? Uh, is this a matter of we don't have enough cyber technical ability, technical talent devoted to this issue? I guess that's the, the thing that that's, must surprise a lot of Americans. Yeah, is why, why is this happening? I think it's a great question. Um, I believe the United States is the most powerful offensive capability in cyber in the world. Better than China, better than Russia. The cyber capability to wreak havoc and to collect intelligence, I'm still standing with, with the U.S. Your question, though, started with the first part of how the defenses, right? The difference is so much of our infrastructure, we're a democracy, capitalism, private sector, so much of our defense resides outside of the government and its ability to contain it, right? And I think that, that's that's our, our vulnerability. Our strength, though, is that we're a democracy. So if they try and stir up trouble, 
our system allows for, you know, unpleasantness and all that, but we, we work our way through it. Autocratic governments don't. So they have good defensives, but they have a weak political system. So the one last point, I want to put a bid in for spies. You know, the spies can keep the peace. How do they keep the peace? <laughs> you know, spies are cheap, by the way. You want to look at the budget. The, the spy business, the you know, people that collect the information, you can't even find it on the Defense Department budget. It's so small. It's a decimal's decimal. But if you had a spy well-placed inside your adversary, be it China, Iran, North Korea, you wouldn't have to spend so much money because, you know, it, it's one of these things where you can, in the security side, you can have all these protections and guards and buttons. And, and at the end of the day, you know, someone hijacks a plane, you know, changes history. So there's limits to how much you can defend yourself in cyber. But good intelligence, you know, gives you a leg up. So if you know that this is what they're doing, then you can more appropriately respond to it. So I'm, I'm putting a bit in. There you go. Solicited by my friends at the agency. I just happen to believe that sometimes <laughs> in the defense, they're going to annoy every defense country. We spend millions of dollars around the Beltway doing this and that and the other. And I would say, well, that's great, and we should do that. But give me one good spy, and they'll tell you the, the answer. Okay, so uh, I'm simplifying it and, uh, and, and maybe undignifying it in, in a way. But, but I, I do think we have the capability. And then the other thing is, do we have the will? which I keep coming back to as we face these nation states, we need a better national consensus. That's among our people, which then is reflected in the Senate. We need to get that done if we're going to fight, uh, take on some of these big challenges. A fitting conclusion spoken well by America's great spy master, Jack Devine. He's the author of Spy Master's Prism, the fight against Russian aggression. So much we didn't have a chance to cover here, Jack. Uh, your time in Afghanistan, your covert action activities in other parts of the world, South America. I mean, that's why people have to get out and buy this book. So thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we really do enjoy having you here at Reader's Corner. Thank you so much. Next week, David Daly joins us on the program to talk about his timely book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Reader's Corner.